Normal Podcast. I am Krista Nichols, your host, and this week I am so excited to be bringing you the Tower of London, otherwise known, at least our the first part of this episode will be known as Medieval Spooky Times. Um, the Tower of London is also known as Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress of the Tower of London. And seeing as how I just had to draw a second breath saying that, just in the middle of that sentence, we're just going to refer to it as the Tower of London. Or just the Tower. Either way. Um, We're going to break this episode up into two pieces, just because there's so much information out there. And I think I already got a little into the weeds in talking about all of the details surrounding some of these people. So we're just going to pick that up in the next episode. Um, I'm very excited to bring some of these stories to you, but know that I've had to cut out a lot of detail. So if you hear me say something and you're like, oh my gosh, she left out like, I don't know, five years of this story. Yes, I did. Because a lot of these stories could just be stories on their own. And they might be, I might expand on a side note episode at one point on some of them, but... Let's kind of get into the history of the tower first. Um, The tower was built in London, and London itself was known as Londinium. It was an ancient city that was first founded by Rome in 50 AD. When the Roman army decided to build a bridge across the River Thames, and if you've ever seen it, it is fairly large. So, in doing this, they decided that they had done enough building to warrant a port along that river. And during the uprisings that came from the invasion, the original port town was destroyed by the Aseni tribe led by the famous warrior queen, Boudicca. Rome put down the rebellion in a pretty brutal way by killing anyone who stood in their way. This was pretty normal Roman behavior at the time, not that it excuses it. And by the way, I want to put a little note here that while I'm using the words rebellion and uprising, it does not describe what they were doing. The Aseni tribe and the other tribes that followed and that were part of this were not necessarily rebelling against Roman rule. They were defending their country and their lands from being invaded by the Romans. So as much as I see a lot of websites and a lot of people referring to these as rebellions and um, uprisings, to me, that was not the case. They were just defending their lands. So the Roman invasion got much worse in 210 AD when most of the Scottish lowlands occupied by the Picts were nearly completely wiped out, resulting in a mass genocide ordered by Emperor Septimus Severus and carried out by his son Caracalla. The order was to kill everyone, even babes in their mother's wombs, and that was a direct quote from the order. This was to finally stop the rebellions to Roman rule constantly being carried out by the Caledonians and the Ma'aratira, which, by the way, I thought was pronounced Maite or Maite, but as it turns out... Ma'a, wait, I had it the first, perfect the first time, but Ma'a-ra-ti-ra tribes. Anyway, back to London. Let's go ahead and jump to 1066, when an army of Normans, Bretons, Flemish, and French soldiers led by the Duke of Normandy invaded Britain to impose a new order. The Duke of Normandy later became known as William the Conqueror. Unfortunately, this new order was not one of peace. 
William built the White Tower, utilizing part of a massive Roman wall that was still standing from their occupation. He used this as a royal residence, and it served another purpose, too. The tower was super imposing, and it acted as a symbol of oppression to the people of London who'd just been conquered. The front face was constructed with cane stone imported from France, which gave it its name. The stone was now, or is now, just so you know, turning yellowish due to car exhaust, something they never would have thought of back in 1066. So right now, um, they're trying to either clean it up or come up with a method to repel it so we don't lose the white color of the cane stone. Anyway, I digress. I thought that was an interesting fact. Um, it was later to expand or expanded to include several buildings, a fortification wall, and a moat. The moat. So fun. Um, and not fun, actually. <laughs> when people depict castles with a moat, they're like, oh, here's this clear water. But um, that was where a lot of the waste, like people's waste, animal waste, kitchen waste, just random amounts of waste, would go into this moat to repel people from swimming in it um, to gain access to the castle. Um, it was used very well, usually, for defense. So look up moats. They're really fun. Um, the first prisoner, by the way, so it was used as a royal residence, and then it was converted to be a prison when they decided not to use it as much as a residence. And they do kind of back and forth throughout history use it still as a residence, but its primary function after at this point was as a prison. So the first prisoner was Ranulf Flambard, the Norman Bishop of Durham. He served under two kings before being imprisoned in the tower by the new king, Henry I, probably to cover financial misdeeds from the former king, William Rufus. He was also the first prisoner to escape the tower when he fled to Normandy. He was later exonerated and whatnot. But escaping the tower back then must have been pretty easy, the more I think about it. It was a royal residence, like I said, and Flambard was its first wealthy prisoner. So not only did they probably not think it would ever occur to him to escape, but it just wasn't built for that, really. The White Tower was also later on known as a dungeon. And when you think of medieval methods of torture, usually they were in place at the Tower of London. That's where that came from. Instruments like the Scold's Bridle, the Breast Ripper, which is exactly what it sounds like, um, the Iron Maiden, um, and the Pillory were being used often, among other things, at the Tower. Now, I've seen a few articles say that the Iron Maiden was used as an instrument of torture, which was not true. As far as I can tell, the Iron Maiden was used for a slow and excruciating execution. Uh, it was first used on a coin forger in 1515. Crazy. And the pillory, for those of you who did not know what that was, I did not know what that was, is similar to the stocks. So it was made to be a public humiliation and pain device. So criminals are sometimes just randos who spoke out of turn, right, were locked into the pillory. And then the townspeople would throw rotten food, animal corpses, taunts, and insults at them. Occasionally, people strapped in would die because crowds would get violent. The scold's bridle worked in a similar way, but it was a metal helmet with a tongue suppressor to stop women from spreading lies, witchcraft, and other such nonsense that they felt women said back then, right? Actually, a lot of these torture 
implements were used on women, which is just awful. There's more than just this. Um, I invite you to look that up on your own because it's just awful. Like the breast ripper literally ripped breasts off. Like what? I mean, why? That's all I'm going to say. Just why? Did people survive this? Cause I don't think that they did. Um, insane levels of torture here. It's just, it's always interesting to me what people think of to hurt others or what methods people use to hurt others. I, I can't, I can't even relate to that uh, impulse. So these methods of torture were usually reserved for the lower classes. Nobility did not get this sort of treatment when they were imprisoned. However, while the clergy were sometimes nobility, they did not get that pass. One clergyman, John Gerard, impo- er, imprisoned sorry, in 1594, described the torture he endured. And this is his direct quote. Then they put my wrists into iron gauntlets and ordered me to climb two or three wicker steps. My arms were then lifted up and an iron bar was passed through the rings of one gauntlet, then through the staple and rings of the second gauntlet. This done, they fastened the bar with a pin to prevent it from slipping and then removed the wicker steps. They left me hanging by my hands and arms, fastened above my head. So... It was a way of stretching in a way using your own body weight. And while that doesn't seem as bad as the scold's bridle or the breast ripper or anything like that, or the iron maiden for that matter, these gauntlets were not cloth. They were metal. So sometimes the metal would cut into the wrists of the person hanging. Sometimes they would fall off merely because their skin had been cut into so deeply that it was just taken off. So I don't know if any of you hung out in your um, high school's weight room. Um, There was always a photo that, um, not hung out, but you know, worked out. Um, There was a photo that always got to me of this finger that the skin and muscle had been removed to expose the bone or most of the bone because somebody had worn a ring while working out and something happened where it just took off that flesh. But it always stuck in my mind because it was just so gruesome. And that's how I imagine this torture to be. So obviously, John Girard did not lose his hands, but it doesn't mean that others did not. So, on a lighter note, somewhat, in the 1200s, the Tower of London was used as a royal menagerie to house all of the animals given to the reigning monarchs as gifts. Known as, they're also known as royal beasts. This started in 1235 when Henry III received two quote, leopards as a gift from the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Frederick II. The leopards were probably lions, but they were referred to as leopards in the heraldry on the king's shield. In 1252, a polar bear joined the mix, and an African elephant was added in 1255. On that note, the elephant was housed in a brand new 40-foot by 20-foot enclosure and had a dedicated keeper, but it died after only two years. It's easy to think that these animals were treated badly because, I mean, hello, Middle Ages, Um, but they were treated as best they could by people who had no idea how to care for them. The lions and tigers did well and birthed many cubs. Visitors to the tower would have to first pass the lion's tower, which was incredibly impressive if you were visiting the tower for the first time. Um, And on the polar bear, he was given to King Henry, like I said, in 1252, Um, and was 
chained in an enclosure, but was allowed to swim and hunt for fish in the River Thames. He or she had a collar and a strong cord that was tied to them so that they didn't escape. Interesting. A terrible life for that poor polar bear. This was considered to be the first zoo, with the Tower Menagerie being open for the public to visit. And there were many other animals that were present there. I believe there were eagles that were there too, um, and various other large cats. Uh, those are just the ones that I wanted to talk to about. But it closed in 1835 amid animal welfare concerns brought on by the RSPCA, or the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Most of the animals after that were either sold or moved on to the New London Zoo located in Regent's Park, where it still stands. So that's interesting. Um, but let's move on to the prisoners of the Tower of London. I don't know that there's any... I think there actually... No. I think there is a ghost of a polar bear that has been said to be seen in the tower. So FYI, if you hear that, that's where that came from, if you hear that story elsewhere. Let's get into the prisoners of the Tower of London. So the tower held all sorts of prisoners, but the ones we're going to talk about today committed crimes of a political nature for the most part, and two very famous prisoners, like a few others, honestly, that are going to be talked about, really committed no crime at all. But let's get into the first one. Her name is Margaret de Clare, Baroness Battlesmere, which I hope I'm saying correctly, I'm not sure. And she was the first woman to be imprisoned in the tower. So to give you a little background on why this might have happened to her, um, kings and queens would use the homes of other nobility to sleep in and rest in while traveling. And Queen Isabella, while on a pilgrimage, had chosen the castle of Baroness Battlesmere. Now, whether this was on purpose or not is unknown, but her husband was part of a group of barons that were opposing King Edward II. So when Queen Isabella approached the castle of Baroness Battlesmere, her husband, Baroness Battlesmere's husband, uh, was out meeting with a group of those barons that were fomenting insurrection. And... The Baroness refused Queen Isabella's entrance into her castle by saying that her husband was not there to consult with and allow this, so she had to say no. And this was not just because she felt like Queen Isabella was probably dipping her nose into affairs that she had no business in, or did have business in, I really don't know, but it's more likely that they just did not get along. Um, Queen Isabella had a chance to help a friend of the Baroness's with an appointment to an important office in the government. She said no, and she really didn't give a reason as to why she said no. So who knows what words passed between them. They were not good with each other, though. So when Queen Isabella approached the drawbridge anyway, after hearing the answer that was no, um, she tried to enter by force. Seeing this, Baroness Battlesmere ordered her men to fire on her escort, killing six of the queen's party. Margaret, no surprise here, was imprisoned in the tower, and her husband, meanwhile, used this excuse to more firmly align with the barons opposing King Edward II's rule. Upon her husband's execution, by the way, during all this, he tried to overthrow the king, Side note, right? Um, Margaret was then released and lived out her days in relative peace. Uh, Queen Isabella did a whole bunch of other stuff that got her exiled, but that's a story for another day. You might 
remember Queen Isabella if you're a big fan of the movie Braveheart. It was depicted um, as her being very sympathetic to the Scots and at some point uh, romantically aligning herself with William Wallace. But during this whole time, she was nine, I want to say, when all these rebellions in Scotland were going on. And yeah, she in no way had anything to do with that. So that movie is wrong on many counts. And that's just one of them. So let's go on to the very famous story, The Two Princes. Edward V, King of England, and Richard of Shrewsbury, Duke of York, were brothers aged 9 and 12. After their father's death, they were to be cared for by their uncle and lord protector, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, and he kept them at the tower, in this instance being used as a royal residence yet again. He then had them declared illegitimate and ascended the throne. In 1483, they disappeared. Of course, many, many people think that this was to solidify Richard's place on the throne. But, as always, there are also many, many other theories as to what happened to them. Including that either one or both of them escaped assassination. And that they were killed by various other nobles in support of King Richard. I find it super unlikely that Richard himself would have killed the boys, but it's very likely that one of his guards did. I don't think that they escaped, especially because of this next piece of information. In 1674, a workman at the tower dug up a wooden box containing two small human skeletons. They were found in a box under the staircase and are widely accepted to be the remains of Edward and Richard. It's never been proven, but it's probably them. The bones after that were buried in Westminster Abbey, where you can actually find and visit them today. Although, as somebody who's just really, really interested in history and in historical accuracy, I would love to see them exhumed and tested. I don't know how they would do this. Maybe there's a relative of theirs somewhere out there um, where we could trace this back, but I would love to see if that those skeletons are actually them. I mean... The tower was huge, and there were a lot of people there. So honestly, it could be anybody. Chances are it is them, but it, it really could be anybody. So stories abound of these two boys um, in white night shirts playing on the tower battlements. There's so many people who have seen them doing that, so playing in the halls, playing in the battlements. And there have been quite a few people who report hearing children playing throughout the bloody tower where they have said were said to be murdered. Now, of course... I'm sure they were not the only children to die in the tower, sadly. Um, so we don't know if the children playing are actually them, but the two boys in nightshirts playing around the castle in the tower, then maybe that's them. We don't actually know. Our next ghost is Margaret Pole, Countess of Salisbury. She was executed for treason, which at the time was really just being against the marriage of Anne Boleyn and King Henry VIII. Her, her son, and anyone else associated with a so-called Exeter conspiracy were imprisoned and sentenced to death by King Henry VIII. She, however, never felt like she did anything wrong. Eventually, the people charged with searching her home did find a tunic with the five wounds of Christ, symbolizing her support for Catholicism, um, and the end of King Henry VIII's rule for his Catholic daughter, Mary. On May 27th, 1541, Margaret was told she was going to die within the hour. 
when she was told this, she said she'd imputed no crime, uh, but nevertheless was taken to the block for beheading. While there were witnesses to her execution, being of noble birth, her death was not made public. Two eyewitnesses to the execution have slightly differing stories on the amount of people present to the execution, but definitely not in how it was carried out. And that is the awful part of this story, of this particular story. The main executioner was away dealing with like a rebellion in the North or something like that. I know I was just saying how into historical accuracy I was, but (laughs) clearly that is sometimes true and sometimes not. So, um, all right. So again, the main executioner was away. So another less experienced one took over for her beheading. And upon arriving at the block, she said she would not lay her head down. And this was her direct quote. So should traitors do, and I am none. When she was forced onto the block, she turned her head every which way so that the executioner ended up hacking up her shoulders and part of her head um, until her head was finally off. And I believe he had chased her around to do this. The stories, like I said, kind of vary, but that's a, that's a pretty common one there. When her cell was cleaned out, they found the following poem carved on her wall. And here it goes. For traitors on the block should die. I am no traitor. No, not I. My faithfulness stands fast and so. Towards the block I shall not go. Nor make one step as you shall see. Christ in thy mercy, save thou me. This was an appalling execution, and due to this, she was seen as a martyr to many in the church. And in 1886, she was recognized as a martyr by Pope Leo Thirteenth. Ah, I almost got myself on that one, Thirteenth, um, and was beatified. The ghostly screams of Margaret are frequently heard at her execution site. There are also reports of the scene playing out again and again with Margaret running from her executioner as he cuts off pieces of her until finally her head is cut off. And that is Margaret Pohl. That one, that one was bad. Um, I had heard of that a couple of times before I decided to do the episode on the tower and it got to me. I mean, I, I figured that there were at least a couple of people who probably ran from the executioner, but not like that. I guess I didn't think it through. (laughs) Arguably, the most famous person beheaded at the Tower of London was Anne Boleyn. And she is famous for a lot of reasons, but we'll get into all of those. She was born in 1501 to parents Thomas Boleyn and Lady Elizabeth Howard. She was given a traditional education and had been sent to France to be a maid of honor to Queen Mary and then to Mary's 15-year-old stepdaughter, Queen Claude. She spent about seven years in France, and she also became acquainted with the King of France, um, King Francis's sister, Marguerite de Navarre. She was also an author herself that argued for a more humanist approach to religion and Catholic reform. And in a lot of the articles I read, um, his sister Marguerite had been a little bit called out, um, as a heretic, but because, you know, she was the King's sister, nothing really happened to her. Um, but she did introduce Anne Boleyn to a lot of these, uh, thought processes and, uh, new ways of looking at religion. 
So upon her return, she was introduced to King Henry VIII's court. And of course, with her quick wit, education, and experience, she became a really fast favorite of the, of the king. Before she was queen, she was meeting with diplomats, granting petitions, and giving patronage. She was also, at this point, responsible for solidifying an important alliance with France, which was very needed at that time. And unlike her other counterparts, because there were many before her, she refused to become a mistress of King Henry. She refused to sleep with him until he acknowledged her as his legitimate queen, which would require an annulment from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Now, here is another place where I'm going to have to skip over a lot of history because a lot happened to depose Catherine of Aragon, and I don't want to get any of that history wrong or go way, way too far into the weeds on it. Um, because again, it's one of those stories that could be an episode on its own if we were that kind of podcast. But since I'm focusing more on the paranormal aspect, we're going to focus on Miss Anne Boleyn. So he eventually did get an annulment, not a divorce. Like a lot of people say he did get an annulment. But he also eventually broke with the Catholic Church anyway, getting himself excommunicated in the process. But with the help of Anne and her advisors, he did create the Anglican Church. So that's still the main religion of England. And the big difference with that, we kind of went over um, that whole change um, in the episodes on episode on the Greyfriars Kirkyard. But just to or just to go over it again. Um, Henry wanted to be named as head of the church and people were not really into that. They wanted the Pope to be the head of the church, if not God, which is where we got a lot of the wars on religion. Again, whole other episode. <laughs> um, so moving on, she and Henry wanted a son. And part of the reason Henry wanted a new wife in the first place is because Catherine only had a girl. She only had princess Mary and she seemed unable to have a son. So that was one of the big reasons that he wanted a new wife, so he could have an heir. Now, Anne's first child was so expected to be a boy that even birth announcements were made up with the word prince on them. And many people had already taken it to be a fact. I believe in some of the sources I read, they had even consulted some French mystics um, and psychics and they had all said, this is meant to be, this is a boy. But they were all wrong because when um, Anna gave birth, it was to Princess Elizabeth, later Queen Elizabeth, one of the greatest monarchs to ever reign in England. But nevertheless, not a boy like they wanted at that time. So they kept trying, and after several miscarriages, Anne and the king were let down and kind of at odds. Instead of continuing with the loving marriage that they had fought so hard for, King Henry began paying court to Jane Seymour. It's said that when King Henry gave a locket to Jane in front of Anne, she ripped it off of her with so much force that her fingers bled. Which, I mean, no judgment, Anne, oh my god. And I don't even want to blame Jane, although she's part of it. I would like to say what a crap husband King Henry VIII was. And I know that that is an understatement given what happens later, but none of that had happened yet. Nobody knew what a jerk he would end up to be, or turn out to be. And yeah, it was all kind of new, but I'm going to say, like, 
just, this is all awful. And poor Catherine of Aragon at all of that, too. I mean, Anne knew what she was doing. The man was married. But Catherine of Aragon really did nothing wrong here. So I feel bad for all of them in his little web. But, yeah, he was the worst. <laughs> anyway, eventually... Henry claimed that Anne had performed some sort of witchcraft on him, French witchcraft at that, and accused her of having affairs, even with her brother. So she, in the end, was put on trial for um, incest as well as treason, and treason by way of infidelity. The English people at the time, or law at the time, saw infidelity as treason because of the um, line of succession. So if you ever hear that, like, oh, infidelity is treason, that's why they said that. Because if Anne really did have an affair with some other person or some other guy, who, if she got pregnant, we'd, we wouldn't know who the father of that child is. So that is where they saw it as treason. Not saying it's right, just saying that's why they felt that way. As you can imagine... After the deposing of the crowd favorite, Catherine of Aragon, the people of London were not fans of Anne Boleyn. So no one was really doubting that any of this incest or infidelity stuff might not be true. They kind of believed any story about her, especially that. She was imprisoned in the tower and ordered to be executed to make way for Jane Seymour to ascend the throne as Henry's king, queen. Her brother and father were also imprisoned, but I believe only her brother George was actually beheaded. And she was known as a happy prisoner, accepting of her fate. In fact, she made jokes to those around her saying that she was happy to happy that the executioner was a professional and that she had a small neck, so it should go pretty quickly. On the morning of her execution, she said goodbye to her ladies in waiting and asked for their prayers. She then repeated this prayer continually until her death. Jesus, receive my soul. O Lord God, have pity on my soul. She knelt upright after a blindfold was tied on her, and the executioner took her head off in one blow. While they were prepared for her execution, they were not prepared for her body, and it was thus thrown into an unmarked grave until the reign of Queen Victoria. It was found and labeled with a plaque on the floor of the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula. About 500 years later, Anne's songbook was found with this song in it. O death, rock me asleep, bring me to quiet rest. Let pass my weary, guiltless ghost, for I must die. There is no remedy. When played, of course, over music, it sounds much nicer. Well, as nice as it could for being a poem about accepting your own death. But historians do argue whether it was written by her or about her. But here's the thing. Anne would have been well able to write it. She was educated and well-versed with music, so it's a possibility that she did write it, and it was also in a songbook that belonged to her. So to me, it's super possible that that was something she absolutely wrote. However, we cannot concretely prove that. Her ghost is said to be the most well-traveled in Britain, having been seen headless at Hever Castle, Sal Church, Blickling Hall, Marwell Hall, and of course the Tower. 
1864, General George Dundas saw Anne in the form of a ghostly white figure. She was moving towards a guard, gliding with her feet not touching the floor. The guard, thinking that this is a real person, charged at her with a bayonet, only to go see it go straight through a headless Anne Boleyn. Realizing he'd seen a ghost, he, of course, fainted. He was actually nearly charged with abandoning his post because he fainted, but General Dundas testified in his favor, so he was let off. <laughs> Another sighting happened at the Chapel Royale. A light was flickering inside late one night, and when the captain of the guard climbed a ladder to see what he thought might be a fire starting, he saw a procession of people in centuries-old attire led by Anne Boleyn. He only recognized her after seeing paintings of her. She's also been seen walking around the church near the tower, as well as to her grave. This might have been the place where she felt the most betrayed, and that's why she still haunts it. Uh, one of the scariest stories, though, and it, it caught me a few years ago when I first heard it. It really scared me, and of course now it's just very interesting. But one of the scariest stories concerning Anne's ghost happened nowhere near the tower. At Blickling Hall, a visitor reported seeing, this is on May 19th, so it was her execution date, they reported seeing a woman arrive on a carriage, headless, accompanied by four horses and a headless horseman. They saw her get out of the carriage and walk into Blickling Hall. And then several other reports have had her walking, still holding her head, walking up and down the halls. And so it's said that she wanders from dusk until sunrise. This is very scary, and I'll tell you why. First of all, the headless portion of it, don't care for that. Um, the horses, the headless horsemen, all of that is just very, very scary. But then just seeing somebody with, like, holding their head, just walking around, I mean, that would flip me out. So... It does scare me, but on the other side of things, why I'm not super scared anymore is just because it's like, okay, so it happens every year on May 19th. I mean, have there been videos? I haven't looked. I'm sure there are, but I would like to see if people actually do pay attention to this. Because it's so specific, I just, I don't know. I don't really believe it. But we're going to go ahead and stop here and save the rest of the tower's bloody history for the next episode. So here we're ending in the mid-1500s, and we're going to pick right back up and go into present day. But I wanted to say, if you haven't already, please rate and review my podcast. I did see a new review, and it's awesome, so thank you so much. You know who you are. Um, but yeah, Definitely, if you've rated me, also know that you can review me if you have not already. Um, I hate to constantly ask for that, but it would help me out so much in getting found by new listeners. And of course, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to clarify something, reach out to me. I'm on Instagram at historical paranormal is the handle at historical paranormal, not historical paranormal podcast, although it's possible that you would find me that way. I, I'm just going to say, go ahead and not do that, just at Historical Paranormal. Um, follow me, check out my posts, comments, let me know if you have any questions or if you like a story that I didn't cover to be covered because I would love to hear new and interesting stories, especially if I haven't heard of them already. And there's, 
I mean, it sounds like I'm bragging, but I'm not. There's just a lot of stories I've already heard. So while there's still a list of things I'm going to cover, why not add some new stuff in? Um, and if, of course, you have any scary stories that you have experienced, hauntings and such like that, please let me know. I'm interested in that too. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>